The philosopher Michael Novak once famously wrote this. He said, unity and diversity is the highest possible attainment of a civilization. A testimony to the most noble possibilities of the human race. And this attainment is made possible through passionate concern for choice and an atmosphere of social trust. Unity and diversity. What Michael Novak is really saying here is that we're all different and that getting along together isn't always easy. Working together, trusting one another is actually this highest attainment of civilization. We can also point out that it's necessary for civilization to happen. If we don't trust one another, if we can't find unity, our civilization won't continue. And it might be this highest attainment, this necessary thing. But if we're honest and you've been looking at the news or talking with those around you today, it doesn't seem like it's very easy. Maybe sometimes it doesn't even feel like it's possible. Because disunity and a lack of social trust are so common to our experiences right now. It seems like with every issue, there are two sides. And we've had these experiences and had conversations with friends. Every situation that you encounter with them, you talk about the Gaza Strip. And all of a sudden, there's different opinions. You talk about whether we should be vaccinated. And how we should return to functioning as society once this pandemic is over. You talk about the government and how they've done a good job or a poor job. You talk about gender and sexuality today and all of a sudden you find that you're on different planes. Everything feels divided. Maybe you've even stopped having these conversations or spend less time recently with people you would have called your friends because you've realized the fracture is so deep. You know this strife. You feel it. The reality is that we have a great need for unity in our divided world. And the question is, where can it be found? Where are we going to find it? Where can we get this unity that we need? Well, this morning as we begin our new six-week series on God's glory in his church, we're going to look at Ephesians chapter 1, and we're going to consider the way that God has a plan to bring unity into this world. It's through his church as we're brought together in worship and submission and adoration for Jesus Christ, the King of Kings. This morning, we're going to unpack this idea, this unity, this beauty in Jesus Christ by considering three unequally weighted points. And I'm actually going to spend a lot of time on point two. We're going to look at number one, God's plan for unity. Number two, God's blessing in Christ. Number three, God's glory in the church. That's God's plan for unity, God's blessing in Christ, and God's glory in the church. I'm going to see what God has done through his church to bring unity into this world, how he's working. But before we really dig in, as we come to this new series, we need to look a little bit at the context. We need to realize something about what Paul's writing to us. So the Apostle Paul, he's writing about what God is doing through Jesus Christ to build a church that's reconciled to God and with one another. And he's doing that not sitting pensively with his his finger on his chin on a warm Mediterranean patio, sipping his favorite beverage. That's not what he's doing. No, Paul is writing, maybe nursing the bruises that he just received from the soldier that's supervising him. In the dark, squinting, holding on to a piece of paper in prison, 
writing down these glorious words of salvation that God is working in his church. And this is important to remember because the things Paul writes about the church in the book of Ephesians are not abstract and merely theological musings that Paul likes to spend his time thinking about. What he's teaching in Ephesians is the most concrete, revolutionary ideas and realities that he's ever encountered. And as he experiences the depths of the problems of hatred and disunity and sin, as he sits in a prison, he writes to the Ephesians. And he writes full of joy and worship about what God is doing through Jesus in his church. And he writes this way because he's confident. He's confident that it is through the church that God is working to recreate this world. So look at point one with me. We're going to look at God's plan for unity in verses 9 to 10. I'm actually going to use a translation here by New Testament scholar N.T. Wright. It's a little bit different than the one we read earlier. Look at 9 and 10. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ. To be put into effect when the times reached their fulfillment. To bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. This is God's big plan for his church. See, God's purpose in sending Jesus to earth and building a church is to bring unity to a world that's alienated from God and from one another. Full of disunity. A world that we know all too well is full of war. A world where, where fathers are broken off in relationship with their daughters. A world where friends become enemies. A world where the rich oppress the poor and the poor hate the rich. It's for this world that God has a plan for unity in Jesus Christ. And his plan for unity is to create unity by bringing Everything into submission under Jesus. And I realize that that might set you off. Because we live in a world that's so cautious and wary of authority of any kind or of the word submission at all. I realize that. And if we're honest, we probably have a verse with an issue with this verse in particular. And we think, wait a second. You're saying that God is going to bring unity by imposing his authority over all of us? Well, that sounds pretty oppressive. I'm not sure that I'm into that. And the thing is, we think that we'll be freer and better off in a world that doesn't have to submit to authority. And yet, let me ask this. What happens in this world when there isn't a good authority in place? What happens when children don't have a good and loving dad in the picture, instructing them, teaching them, and disciplining them? What happens when a nation state turns away from its government and turns to anarchy? The Democratic Republic of the Congo is a good example of a place where this has happened. Because for all intents and purposes, it's been an anarchist state for decades. Since independence from Belgium in 1960, there has only been one peaceful transfer of government. That was in 2018. It's a country that's grievously synonymous with child soldiers, warring militias, and opposition groups. 
It's ranked 175th out of 189 countries in the world by the Human Development Index. And it's the world's bloodiest conflict zone since World War II, with 6 million deaths recorded since 1996. But what if, what if the right ruler was given authority? What if he was so good and so compelling, so wise, so loving, so sacrificial and kind that people laid down their weapons as they followed that leader in love and obedience toward peace? It sounds like a fairy tale. <laughs> it sounds like a pretty good fairy tale, but it sounds like a fairy tale to us. Who could possibly be a leader like that? How could that possibly happen? But Christ City, I want to tell you right now, it's a true story. And there are even glimmers that it is happening right now in the Congo. It's happening in the church of Jesus Christ. I was reading some missionary accounts recently and and stories from the church in the DRC uh, to prepare for this message. And it was incredible to hear stories of God drawing enemies together in the church where Congolese soldiers who committed heinous acts were brought in and forgiven and were reconciled to those that they had wronged. It's not easy. It's hard. But in the church, we're empowered to practice Jesus' words, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. See, God has a plan for unity in his church under Jesus. We could ask, Okay, but how exactly does that happen? How exactly does God cause this submission to Jesus Christ that brings this beautiful unity? Well, it's not by beating us into submission and exerting his authority and forcing us into it. No, it's by graciously and lovingly blessing us in his son, Jesus. Look at verse 3. Paul writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. You see, as Paul begins writing about God's big plan to bring unity in Jesus, he starts getting excited. And in verses 3 to 14, he has this run-on sentence where his words sort of trip over themselves and he piles on idea after idea because he's full of worship and adoration for what God is doing in the church through Jesus. I mean, I can relate to that. I get too excited and talk too fast often. You may have noticed from time to time in these sermons. And nine times in these verses, verses 3 to 14, Paul says that these blessings are all in one place. They're all in Jesus, in Jesus, in Jesus, in him, in Jesus. All these blessings are true. Paul wants us to know that God has brought blessing to his church in Jesus. Lavish, glorious blessing. And in verse 3, I want you to realize that you shouldn't get tripped up by that phrase, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Don't get tripped up by that. 
Sometimes I think we, we see a verse like that and we think um, maybe of like a, a grandma's cross stitch on a wall of a cherub or something. Some disembodied, spiritual, uh, dislocated from real time and earth reality of blessing. That's not what Paul's talking about. And in the following verses after verse 3, what Paul describes are the realities of God's blessings. The reality of God's salvation that has been at work in 2,000 years, not in disembodied, only in cherubs and cross stitches kind of ways, but in concrete ways. As the Holy Spirit is working in the church, empowering it to change. Not just leading us to raise our hands and to have warm feelings of worship and love, though that is a wonderful and beautiful thing, but moving us to concrete actions and transformations in this world. Now, there's so much for us to look at in verses 3 to 14 about these blessings. But I want to highlight now in the rest of this section just three central ideas. I want to show you the way that God is at work drawing us together under the good rule of Jesus as he blesses us by loving us, by forgiving us, and by giving us an inheritance. And I want to take a little bit of time to show how each of these things produces concrete changes in this world and in our lives. Well, the first thing that we see here, Paul wants us to see that Jesus, that in Jesus we are blessed because we are loved. So look at verses 4 to 5. Paul writes this. He says, Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus. Sometimes we come to, to verses like this in the Bible that talk about God's choosing and his electing love, and we get lost right away in the details. We start wondering about how God could possibly choose people, how that works with our free will, what that means for my neighbor down the street. Is he chosen? Is he exercising free will? What's going on here? But notice that in this verse, Paul actually isn't entering into that debate. That's not his point. He's not talking about any of that. By talking about electing and choosing and predestining, Paul is highlighting how radical God's love is for his people. He's saying it isn't a love that depends on us earning it at all. He's saying it's a love that depends on God's glorious and free choice. And Christ City, you adoptive parents that are watching this, you know this. You know this. You've experienced it because when you chose to adopt someone, it wasn't as if you held a competition and sent out the email invitations far and wide saying, only the smartest only the best kids need apply to my heart and to my home. No, what happened was that led by the Holy Spirit, empowered by the love of Christ, you set your affection on the children that God put in front of you and you chose to love them and to adopt them. Not because they'd somehow earned it, but because you chose to love them. To be loved by God is to be loved a little bit like that. It's to be loved and chosen apart from our needing to earn it or to live up to it somehow. And to be loved like that is freeing. It's so freeing for us. It frees us to love others unselfishly. You see, our problem is that all of us long to be truly loved. I want to be loved really badly. But what we do is we place the burden of our need for love on created things. 
And these created things, they can never live up to the weight of our expectations and our desires to be loved by them. We demand love. We start to glom onto other people and just need them. I need their love. And then even sometimes we'll strike out when we don't get from them what we're after. This sort of obsessive longing for love is depicted really well in Death Cab for Cutie's song. So I'm, I'm dating myself here. Uh, I did love Death Cab for Cutie at one point in my life. Uh, but in their song, I Will Possess Your Heart. It's a dark, rhythmic, driving song, and the chorus repeats. You got to spend some time, love. Got to spend some time with me. I will possess your heart. And Ben Gibbard, the lead vocalist for the band, he comments in the song. He said, the song is basically about a stalker. It's about this nice guy who wants this girl he can't have. And he believes they'll be together once she realizes how great he is. He just has to wait it out. That's the part that makes the song really creepy. The delusion of thinking that they were meant to be together. It's a really dark song. A lot of the material is about the inevitable disappointment people feel as they move through life and things don't feel the way they expect. No experience will ever match up to the idealized virgin in your mind. You see, the irony about our need to be loved is that when we place the burden of our need to be loved on another human being, we tend not to be satisfied in the end. We tend to drive them away from us in the process. We tend not to create unity, but actually to create fact fractures and divisions in relationship. Just think of the way that this happens. Think of the way maybe some mothers who need to be loved by their children drive away their teenage children. Or think of maybe a husband who places incredible pressures for personal fulfillment on his wife that she can't live up to and drives her away in the process. Or think maybe of a friend placing her need for relational fulfillment on another friend until that other friend just can't stand the burden of living up to that expectation, that need. But consider God's love for you in Christ Jesus, how fulfilling and freeing it is. Before you did anything, before you did anything good or bad, God knew you and loved you. He set his affection on you. Christ City, this week I was doing a little bit of introspection and, and journaling, spending some time on analyzing my desires. And as I looked into the corners and the dark places in my heart, I couldn't even handle the darkness that I found in my own heart. And I had to come out of that introspection and go on to do something else. But God is a kind of God who knows you intimately better than you do. He knows all that's on the inside of you. And he's not threatened by any of it. He loves you through it perfectly and fully. And his love and his choice mean his love for you is stable and secure. It doesn't depend on you achieving it or living up to it day by day. This love from God is the love that your heart was made for. It's like the, the rivers coming off of the mountains and flowing into the ocean until they're at rest where they are meant to be. It's like St. Augustine's famous quote, Our hearts are restless until they find the rest in thee, O Lord. So the question for us is this. If God's loved us so, so well, why are we looking to satisfy our need for love somewhere else that can't satisfy? 
You see, the hatred and anger and despair and disappointment that ruins our relationships as we place our expectations and need to be loved on mere mortals, all of that's things that we can't fix. We can't solve those problems. But God can fix them by perfectly loving us himself through Jesus Christ. To quote C.S. Lewis, a Christian does not think God will love us because we are good, but that God will make us good because he loves us. See, Paul says God's plan is to bring all things together in unity in Jesus. And he shows us that God is doing this unifying work by blessing his church in Jesus Christ. First, by loving us. Second, by forgiving us. Look at verse 7. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. Christ said, in this world, where can we go to find forgiveness? Where can we find forgiveness? Maybe you don't think you need it most of the time, but, but where are you going to go when you really screw up? When you tell your son or your daughter, you, you yell them into submission. Yet again, you see that look on their face and you can tell the relationship's changed. Or when you betray your friend's confidence, or when you turn away yet again from your spouse, and just something shifts. When you give the cold shoulder for the hundredth time or when your secret addiction finds you out and you're exposed. Or when you speak hurtful words aimed to cut at the heart. What can atone for the hurt and the pain and the destruction that you have caused? Can you, can you really make it right? What about if you've done something unspeakable and truly terrible? Are you forever then defined by your sin? Will your identity become your worst moment? And if you confess what you've done, will you be torn down to the ground by those demanding justice from you? You see, our world isn't wrong. Cancel culture and radical cries for radical justice, they're not wrong. They're getting at something true. The reality that our sin does require punishment. We feel it. As a society, we feel it. We know it. We just refuse to believe that it applies to people besides Harvey Weinstein. And maybe we're so quick to join the angry mob because we want to keep the attention off of our own sin. But God is such a good God that he offers forgiveness to the worst of sinners while at the same time satisfying justice. How? By Jesus Christ becoming human. By God himself being born in human form and going to the cross and suffering and dying, paying the weight that you deserve for your sin in order that God would grant you forgiveness and rather than pour out punishment on you, would pour out blessing upon blessing and lavish grace upon grace for you instead. Just look at verse 7. Paul can't contain himself. He says, in him, we have redemption through his blood. In him, we have redemption. The worst sinner can be redeemed through the blood of Jesus. We have the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. I know that some of you are on the fence. 
And you look at this text and you think, that kind of sounds ridiculous. How could God substitute Jesus for me? How could I simply be forgiven as a gift by trusting in Jesus? That doesn't make any sense. It feels like make-believe. Well, let me ask you, but what if it's true? <laughs> what if it's true and you're just too proud to receive it? What if it's true? What would it mean for a perfectly good God to actually forgive you? would that look like? I think it would mean exactly what we see in the church. The evidence would be seen in this new community of forgiven people that imperfectly learn and grow to offer forgiveness to their own enemies. Think for a moment. In this world, where has reconciliation truly happened? In places of horrible evil. Who else teaches and empowers people to truly forgive their enemies? You see, our culture doesn't do that. In fact, our culture is getting pretty negative about the whole forgiveness idea. I'm moving away and saying, no, let's campaign for justice instead and demand retribution. An eye for an eye. No, it's uniquely the Christian message empowered by the Holy Spirit that speaks this word of forgiveness that is so desperately needed in a world full of sinful people like us. For example, in, in 2006, the watching world stood in awe as the Amish community in Nickel Mines, Pennsylvania, forgave the shooter who killed 10 children ages 7 to 13. Within hours of this horrific murder, these horrific murders, members of the Amish community visited both the killer's immediate family and his parents, each time expressing sympathy for their loss. This is a gripping story. It held captive media for months and years afterward. And later, a group of academics investigated and concluded that the forgiveness of enemies and the power of reconciliation operating in that Amish community, that it wasn't available in the larger culture anymore. It was in this Amish community <clears throat> uniquely because of their belief in a God who himself had become human and who had died for his enemies to reconcile sinners to himself. It required them believing and knowing the forgiveness of God for them to live it out by the power of the Holy Spirit to others. See, the only hope for a world that is so quick to divide, to blacklist, to hate, to create division and to retaliate is to know the forgiveness of God for their sins and to learn to forgive others. In Christ City, there is good news. God is at work in his church creating unity and reconciliation by forgiving people through the blood of Jesus and empowering them to forgive one another. Now, the third thing that I want to show you that God's done to bring unity through Jesus in this text is to give his church an inheritance. Verse 11 says this really simply, in him we have obtained an inheritance. You see, so much of our strife in this world is because we feel so desperately insecure and there are a few things that would be more natural for us in our human state than to feel our own insecurity. We want comfort and we can't seem to attain it for ourselves. We see limited resources and want to scrap and get what's ours and maybe take away from someone else so that we have what we need. The tame version of this is grabbing the last piece of dessert off the tray after dinner before someone else has a chance to get it. And the really perverse 
version of this is when vaccines are stolen from warehouses in India, selfishly used for themselves. See, our insecurity and our sin, they make us grasp for more and more for ourselves. But Paul writes about the way that God has lavished us with blessing, showered us with grace, and has promised us an inheritance in Jesus. What is that inheritance? It's the fulfillment of his promises to make all things new in this world. To live eternally with God in a world without suffering or pain or death or disorder or disunity any longer. Where sin is gone forever. Where no matter what suffering or hardship we face in this life, God in Jesus Christ is making us secure. That's why Paul can comment with such confidence in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and say that no matter what we face, we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As you look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. So let me ask you, how would you act differently in your life if you knew that this were true? If you knew that you were secure, that the promised inheritance in Jesus Christ was yours, would you become more generous? Would you take more risks? I think it would make you bold to act and to trust and to live for Jesus, to be an agent of unity and grace and love and sacrifice in this world. And I think that because it's what's been happening for 2,000 years in the church of Christ. As people take hold of what they have in Jesus, trusting in God's promises, trusting in the inheritance that's been given to them. It's the confidence of Christians who've been made secure that has sent them into plagues to care for the sick, sent them overseas to share the gospel and places of risk with those who've not heard it before, who've moved them across the street to sacrifice what they have to give to those in need and to courageously die for their faith as they sacrifice and love those around them. It's because even death can't take away what's been promised to them. They're secure in Jesus. You see, God is working to bring unity in this world by drawing us together in submission to Jesus, by blessing us in him, richly showing us grace upon grace. In this passage, there's a consistent response to all of this blessing that's poured out on the church through Jesus. It leads to God being glorified as his church worships and praises him for his grace. Just look at our last point, God's glory in his church and the following verses. Look first at how Paul praises God. He says, blessed be the God and the father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He just begins with praise and adoration for God. Look next. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. That it's God who gifts us with grace, who is praised as a result. Or verse 12, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Or verse 14, in him you also were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit to the praise of his glory. See, the result of God's blessings to sinners like us is always worship. Worship. 
It's worship. God's plan to unite all things together in Jesus, things in heaven, things on earth, is to create this new community that's drawn together in worship as we willingly submit ourselves in love and adoration to Jesus Christ, our King. See, the problem that we have isn't so much disunity. The problem we have is disordered worship. See, the problem of disunity in this world is because we all want to do things our way. We all want to be the one on the throne. We all want to be God. We all worship and serve ourselves instead of him. And the DRC that works itself out with every militant group wanting to be in control, wanting to have their own path and conflict ensuing. In my house, it works itself out with my kids and my wife as we all want to be in control. We all want to have the authority to ourselves to do things our way. And there's conflict. In our political environment, it means that everyone has a plan for what would bring flourishing and they want to impose it on everyone else. And conflict ensues. You see, our misplaced loves, our misplaced worship tear us apart and lead us away from flourishing. But look what God has done to bring our human hearts back online to worship the one that we are made for. He hasn't come and forced it on us. He hasn't beat our worship out of us. He came as a human being in humility and with grace, dying for us to bless us lavishly give us what we could never earn for ourselves. To pour out forgiveness and grace and love and mercy as a gift. One to be received by faith. Unity and peace. It turns out that we can't achieve these things for ourselves. Just look at the history of the world. Look at the history of this year and see it. But the good news of the gospel, the good news that Paul is writing about in prison, about the church, is that someone else has achieved it. God has a plan and he's been working for 2,000 years to woo us into submission to Jesus Christ, the King of Kings, to lay down our fight and to submit to him. And the results are seen in his glorious church. So in conclusion, let me ask you a couple questions in response. And the first question is this. Where else do you think you could be spending your time then that would be more meaningful, give you more purpose, more joy, more eternally beneficial than in giving yourself to this church in service and worship for Jesus? I want to encourage you to invest in this community. I want to encourage you, the old-fashioned phrase, just take off your coat and stay a while. Make yourself comfortable here. Don't be out on the periphery. Come close. This is a group of people to invest in. This is a ministry that is glorious enough to give your life to. And we have so many opportunities right now to be giving your life to. We're a small church with a lot of needs. Especially as we go back to gathering, hopefully, sooner than later. We'll need many volunteers. We're too small to be a church that does the 80-20 thing, where 20% of the people do 80% of the work. We're a church that we need to own together, 
to serve together, to worship together Jesus Christ, to give ourselves in this community. I want to encourage you to come, to rejoice, to give yourself here, not because we're so great, but because God is at work pouring out his blessing and effecting change and bringing salvation to this world here in his church. And the second thing I want to ask you is this. Has your heart grown cold to this gospel message? If it has, let me encourage you. Do what I was doing this week. Take Ephesians chapter 1. and Go out by yourself and be with God. Just read line by line. And pray through it. Give him praise. Give him thanks. Confess your sin. Rejoice that he's a God who blesses you, who lavishes you with grace and with love, who forgives your sins, who makes you secure for eternity. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we come before you and we rejoice that you have made a church. That you've loved us in Jesus and that you are making a new community on earth that's a place of life, of flourishing, of unity and blessing. Oh God, we ask, would you grow this church? Would you cause many people to come to know the salvation that is only in Jesus, the blessing that is only in Jesus? Help us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.